so we're removing the fallopian tubes and it does not change periods. It will not make you go through menopause. Um, the ovaries are still producing eggs. The, the house or the uterus is still having periods. Um, there's still all the hormones that are involved in that whole process. It's just that we're taking away the road where the, where the sperm and the egg meet. Since the spring of 2022, OBGYN clinics around the U.S. have reported an increase in questions about tubal ligation, also known as surgical sterilization or salpingectomy. Dr. Laura Hanks joins the Women's Health Cast to talk about why these requests are up and tell us more about surgical sterilization, what happens during the procedure, why people might be interested in permanent birth control, and how she helps patients make sure sterilization is right for them. Dr. Hanks is an obstetrician-gynecologist in the UW Department of OBGYN. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. Today on the Women's Health Cast, I am really excited to welcome Dr. Laura Hanks. Today, we're going to talk about surgical sterilization. Um, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me today. Yeah, really happy to be back again. So this we're approaching this topic today because after we finished our last interview just a couple weeks ago, um, you know, I asked other things that you're interested in or passionate about, and one topic that you mentioned was surgical sterilization. And I w- we will jump into definitions, but um, I also wanted to ask why this why this topic jumped to mind for you and why it's so important to you to uh, help folks learn a little bit more about the procedure and whether or not it's a good choice for them. Yeah, that's a great question. We get a range. I, as an OBGYN, I see a range of women from, you know, uh, uh, or persons, as we should say, starting from getting their first period or um, even wanting to transition because they identify as a female all the way up until, you know, postmenopausal and, and, and seeing postmenopausal issues and then in the middle getting to deliver babies and whatnot. And um this is something that um, a lot of women and people decide that they don't want to have any more children or want to have children ever. Um, and I think it is a very personal uh, decision and one about body autonomy. And, um, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot in our clinic and I think is uh, really important for women to know that this is um, a method of contraception that is out there that might, might be right for them. So tell us a little bit more about this method of con- contraception. Um, you know, I said our topic today is surgical sterilization, um, but I guess in the most general sense, what is that? And there are there other names or terms that people might hear and know that may be more familiar than like surgical sterilization? Are there sort of, I don't want to say like colloquial terms, common, common ways that we talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. So what a lot of people might've heard of is having your tubes tied or tubal ligation or uh, BTL, Um, you know, surgical sterilization is a little bit of a mouthful. So I can understand why people don't say that. I also have read more recently people calling it a a bicep. Um, So that is short for bilateral salpingectomy. Um, which is the type of surgical sterilization that we uh, most often perform today. So when you when you say the you know the word surgical sterilization, that means that it's a permanent surgical sterilization 
um, that uh, is done as a method of contraception. So permanent meaning that we it cannot be reversed. So once you know we we do this procedure, then uh, it women cannot get pregnant without um, you know IVF or you know help of of modern sciences. So. Um, the 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 bicep the bilateral salpingectomy what that's kind of a fancy word for bilateral meaning both sides so both t- tubes and sal- salpingectomy um, means removal of the fo- of the fallopian tubes. Why might somebody be interested in having surgical sterilization done? Like, what makes it a little different from other methods of birth control? So the patients that I see have all you know come from all kinds of. Uh, walks of life and have, um, different feelings about their fertility. And, um, I would say a a good portion have never had children and have no desire to ever have children. A common story that I hear a lot is from the time that they got their first period, they knew that having children was just never going to (laughs) be part of their life. And that's okay. As it turns out, (laughs) if that is your decision, um, there are also people that um, have had one, two, three babies, and um, for you know whatever reason, uh, maybe they're just you know done childbearing, or maybe the pregnancies were very hard or traumatic or um, whatever. They're just no longer wish to uh, conceive, um, and so this is a a great form of contraception uh, where. Um, they don't have to, you know, worry about taking a pill every day or getting a shot or having a procedure to have an IUD. It's really for anyone that does not desire to have children from that point on. And you already mentioned, but I'll just re-ask, we can reinforce, um, that this procedure is not reversible. It's very much, we call it permanent contraception. Yes. Yeah. So the bilateral salpingectomy, as I, as we mentioned, is uh, or by self, as I've seen more recently on uh, social media, is is the removal of the entire fallopian tubes. Um, the the tubal ligation or the the tube tying, quote unquote, as as you've a lot of people have heard in the past, is um, how we kind of used to do it, I guess I would say. So I'm, I'm sure there's some providers that still uh, do this method, but this can be done by using heat or clips, rings, or just a removal of part of the fallopian tubes. Um, so the, that form of, quote, tube tying is technically reversible. So there's uh, there's some doctors that can kind of reattach the tubes or, or remove that ring or clip. Um but not not all OBGYNs or doctors in general are are uh, trained in that kind of surgery, including myself. I've I've seen it once when I was in training, um, and tubal reversals are actually uh, you know trying to get pregnant after a tubal reversi- re- reversal is quite risky. Um, you know, it's first of all it's exposing to a, another surgery and the risk of surgery as well as anesthesia. Um, when you have uh, a lot of scarring in the fallopian tubes, it increases the risk of an ectopic pregnancy. So a pregnancy that implants in the tube um, that can be um, life-threatening to, to women. Um, so it, it does not come without risks. So it sounds like this is a good fit for anyone who is confident that permanent 
a permanent method is the right method for them. And if there's any question or um, uncertainty, there are maybe other options that you could pursue first. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of, you know, what we all talk about in the clinic. And, um, you know, I have, whenever I meet with a patient who is interested in this procedure, I try to get to know them first and kind of make sure that um, we are picking a a form of contraception that best fits their goals um, and, you know, long-term hopes. And um, a lot of times we'll say, you know, are you 110% sure you don't want to have any more children? Uh, because, you know, that's kind of no going back. And, um, and a lot of women say yes. And then so, sometimes every now and then some somebody hesitates and we say, well, there, you know, there's other great for, you know, an IUD and an explant are um, almost as effective as a sterilization and um, can be reversed. So just making sure that we're all on the same page. And it's um, by no means questioning uh, their their reason for coming to see me is just making sure that we're we're all on the same page and I'm helping um, them find the the best contraception for them and their their long term goals. You a little bit ago you talked about the difference between a bilater- bilateral self injectomy, so removing the entire fallopian tube from both sides because we have one on either side, typically. Um, versus tubal ligation, which would be clamping or clipping, burning out, taking a small piece of the fallopian tube. So it like it's no longer connected. It's no longer one piece, but some of the parts are still there. Um, why is there a reason someone might opt to have the whole fallopian tube removed or um, go for the tubal ligation? I guess, is there a, a reason to choose one or the other? Yeah, so this... Um uh, has changed since uh, during my training, actually, in the last um, decade or so, we've we found that there's recent data supporting the theory that um, certain types of ovarian cancel, cancer actually originate from the fallopian tubes. So when we remove the entire fallopian tube, we're actually decreasing the risk of certain kinds of ovarian cancer, not all ovarian cancer. It doesn't mean that someone couldn't develop a, a different kind, but... Um, it does, it does uh, decrease risk of certain kinds of ovarian cancer. Um, and so that's, you know, a, a great um, additional reason, <laughs> I think, that some women, do, you know, when we tell them that, um, it, it's kind of becoming more known, but uh, um, some women that is news in there, and it is like, okay, great, not only are you getting contraception, but you're decreasing your risk for certain kinds of ovarian cancers, um, which is uh, a pretty cool side effect, I guess, <laughs> for, for a lot of women. I remember also reading a study that might have even been conducted by some folks on our faculty that um, post-operative outcomes between the two are very similar, um, blood loss during surgery, very similar. So like risk profile wise, there's not a big difference between yeah. the two options. No, yeah, that is correct. And, um, what, what is another benefit of taking out the fallopian tube and, and not placing a, a clip or a ring is that you don't have a foreign body, um, in the procedure. I've, I still sometimes do procedures where, uh, the clip has fallen off, um, and is somewhere else in their pelvis. And, um, you know, it's, it, it happens and can get embedded. It, a lot of times it's not a big deal, but sometimes it can cause pain. And so by not, you know, putting a foreign body in the pelvis, we, we have that additional uh, benefit as well. Yeah. So I have a lot of questions about what happens 
I guess, during the procedure. Um, how does someone prepare for a, a tubal ligation or a bilateral salpingectomy? Um, what does the surgery look like? How how big a deal is it kind of? Um, I'm not super familiar with the procedure. So, you know, as the name suggested, it is a surgical procedure, meaning it's done in the hospital. It's not done in the clinic. Um, so patients, you know, we do, I mean, that is to say we do see them in the clinic beforehand um, and do all the counseling and go through the consent. But the day, the day of the surgery, uh, patients present to the hospital and they're taken to the preoperative area where they're given a hospital gown that they change into and they have an IV placed. Um, before going to the OR, they, they meet with the surgeon again to go through the consent form, the surgeon being myself or um, another OBGYN, um, and then the anesthesiologist that will be assigned to the case that day, they'll meet as well. And then once they are ready to go, then we move to the OR and they um, generally go under general anesthesia. Again, that's uh, most of the time that's the anesthesia's uh, call, but um, for, for the most part, they do general, meaning that they go fully to sleep and have a breathing tube. Um, and then from our end, we, we clean the abdomen with a special kind of soap. And then we use sterile drapes to place over the patient that has an opening, um, at the, at, at their abdomen. A lot of times we do also put in a manipulator into the vagina. And what that does is helps to, um, move the uterus up and down, um, so that we can better visualize the fallopian tubes. Um, and sometimes, uh, these manipulators can cause a little bit of vaginal bleeding afterwards. So I try to, um, let patients know that, 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 that is very common, um, to happen just because of the, the manipulator, but is, um, is very common. And, and after this procedure, um, so then after we do all that, then the surgeons, uh, go and wash their hands or scrub in. Um, people might've seen that on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> um, so we use a special stove to do that. And then we put our gown and gloves on in a sterile fashion. Um, and then, you know, we start the surgery, which is making a small, so less than a centimeter, uh, incision, um, or cut in the abdomen to place our surgical instruments. I generally make my first incision in the belly button, and then we place the laparoscopic camera through that port, and we fill the abdomen with, with uh, gas in order to be able to see the pelvis. So the the gas isn't going in their bowels, so people think that that'll make them, you know, quote, gassy afterwards, and it's going just in the abdomen to kind of blow it up in a sense um, so that we can see what we need to see. Um, and this is another another thing that I try to uh, counsel patients on is that this gas in the abdomen, we try to get it all out at the end, but sometimes if it's if there is still gas in the abdomen, they can irritate uh, the nerves on their diaphragm and that those nerves actually refer to as shoulder pain. Um, so some women come out and they're like, oh, my shoulder really hurts. And it's, you know, what'd you do to my shoulder? And so it's actually from the gas and it, and it resolves quite quickly, but um, it can be a little bit um, annoying uh, afterwards. So um, once we've uh, confirmed that we're in the abdomen with that first point, then we place two additional ports or make two more incisions. Uh, these, these ports can be uh, either right above each hip bone or just above the pubic bone or sometimes just below the left rib. Uh, the reasons that um, 
the incisions can be in different places depending on the surgeon, is it's uh, surgeon preference or if the surgeon uh, doesn't have an assist or not. So in my previous job, I, I didn't have an assist, a surgical assist. I just had the scrub tech and myself. So um, for, the, for the most part, I would make an incision above the left hip bone and then right below the left ribs. And I would operate on the left side by myself. And then my, my uh, surgical tech would hold the camera that was in the in their patient's belly button and I would do the procedure by myself. Um, which, which is, uh, a nice part about this procedure is it is, um, for the most part, pretty quick and easy, um, and can be done by someone, um, just operating by themselves in a scrub tech. Um, but if you do have an assist or a second surgeon, then we make, we generally, um, a lot of people will make an incision above each hip bone so that, um, a certain, surgeon is on each side and are, they're both operating at the same time. Um, and so once this uh, laparoscopic camera that I talked about is in place and we have the two other ports in place, then the instruments we use are, uh, one is a grasper and one's an is- instrument called a ligasher. Um, I don't have any <laughs> connections to that. That is like a, a trade mark name, but it's the device that we generally use. And, um, but basically what that is, is a, is a, a bipolar cautery device, meaning that it has two electrodes that can grasp tissue and then burn, burn it and then cut it. So we use, uh, the grasper to, um, grasp the fallopian tube, lift it up, and then the ligature removes the tube from the underlying tissue and then, um, removes it from the uterus. And then the fallopian tubes are then removed from the abdomen and sent to pathology. And uh, interestingly, I've had quite a few patients, um, they're, they're always a little shy to ask, but I've had quite a few ask if they can keep their fallopian tubes. And it makes sense. It's part of their body. Um, <laughs> but um, unfortunately, we do need to send them to pathology. Um, the, any, anything that we you know, remove from uh, a person needs to go to pathology just to make sure there's no underlying malignancy or infection or something that needs to be treated further. Um, so once both tubes are removed, then we evaluate the pelvis again and confirm that there's no bleeding. We get, we evacuate the gas from the abdomen as much as we can, remove the instruments and ports, and then we close the incisions. Um, and the incisions can be closed with glue, sutures, steri strips, or band-aids, again, just depending on patient or uh, surgeon preference. So once the surgery is complete, what does recovery look like in the typical patient's case? How long before they can kind of resume normal activities? Um, how long before they can head home? Um, is there any special instructions or considerations to help them recover as fast as possible? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's surgery in the abdomen, so it, people will generally feel sore for a couple of days, kind of like you did a bunch of sit-ups. Um, but the biggest thing the day of the surgery is um, the anesthesia can make people feel drowsy or nauseous. Um, so I generally tell people not to make any big life decisions or um, operate machinery that day because they're, you know, going to be a little bit out of it. Um, so you do need to ride home. Um, and, and patients generally, um, say 98% of patients go home the same day unless they're, you know, some, some sort of complication or if they're just really nauseous, sometimes um, not able to, to tolerate um, orals. Um, but yeah, they generally go home the same day. And then, um, it really depends on 
job, what they do for work. So I always ask what people do for work now in, you know, this in, in light of many people working from home these days. Um, so if you're working from home and your pain is controlled with ibuprofen and Tylenol, which most people's are, you can go back to work the next day. If you have a more um, active job, lifting, bending, twisting, things like that, I, I generally t- tell people to um, maybe take, <clears throat> excuse me, take the week off from kind of the more physically active jobs. You've mentioned every surgery has risks. What are some of the common risks that you look out for associated with this procedure in particular? Yeah, so risks of uh, surgical sterilization are very similar to risks of um, other abdominal surgeries. So those include bleeding, infection, blood clots, injury to surrounding organs, which um, includes bowel, bladder, uterus, nerves, and blood vessels. Um, And then there's also the risks of anesthesia because, you know, you're getting a high dose of medication that can make you sleep. So cardiovascular risk, pulmonary risks, um, being able to ventilate, et cetera. Um, Following the procedure, so after having surgical sterilization done, I guess, how long after that is it effective as birth control? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, as soon as we remove the tubes, uh, person is is sterile. <laughs> um, we generally tell people to refrain from having intercourse for at least a week, though, um, more so to recover from surgery. Um, but... Um, you know, we do before any procedure, we do a pregnancy test, but um, theoretically, if someone uh, had just become pregnant um, before the procedure that uh, might not be picked up on a pregnancy test, um, that, I mean, that could happen. But, you know, once the tubes are removed, then it's, a person is sterile. <laughs> so, but, but please wait to heal from surgery before having intercourse. <laughs> Yeah. Does someone still get a period after having their tubes removed? That's a great question. And um, I get that. I, I'm asked that a lot. And uh, the answer is yes. Um, it's uh, so we're removing the fallopian t- tubes and it does not change periods. It will not make you go through menopause. Um so it, just to kind of like break down the anatomy, and this is kind of a weird analogy, but I think of the ovaries as kind of like a car dealership. And once a month, they, they, a car leaves the car dealership and it takes, uh, so that's the idea of ovulation. So an egg coming out from the, from the ovary. Um, so this car then drives down the road or the fallopian tube to the house, um, which is the uterus where it can park and make little cars, so little babies, <laughs> kind of silly, but I don't know. It it makes sense in my head. So anyway, in this analogy, we're removing the road. So the road is being completely removed so that when somebody ovulates it, the egg just can't get to the uterus. So the, the ovaries are still producing eggs. The, the house or the uterus is still having periods. Um, there's still all the hormones that are involved in that whole process. It's just that we're taking away the road where the, where the sperm and the egg meet. What happens to the egg then if it can't make its normal journey down to the uterus? Yeah. Where yeah, does it I, go? I know. I also get that question. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, an egg is microscopic. So it um, is so, so small. And so it is just released into the abdomen and just absorbed and disintegrated. But um, sometimes I... I know that sounds weird, but, <laughs> but, um, that's it. it it's just what happens. <laughs> I feel like when we call it an egg, we picture something so much larger and, and it's really not. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and ovaries and uterus, you know, the uterus is the size of a, a fist. And so people are very surprised by that. They think, you know, we think of babies inside you, but whenever, you know, a lot of times when people think of uteruses, they think of them having a whole term baby inside of it. But really when it's a non-pregnant uterus is um, usually about the size of a fist. So all of it is a lot smaller than people kind of imagine, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, the pictures we see, everything's so blown up. So a distorted idea of, of pelvic anatomy, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so surgical sterilization is a very highly effective form of birth control. Um, but what about sexually transmitted infections? Um, do people still need to be thoughtful about their risk and protection from STIs after having this procedure done? Yes, they do. So the only form of contraception that's going to protect against STIs is condoms. So any type of birth control that I counsel patients about, you know, um, including surgical sterilization, IUDs, Nexplanons, which is the implant that goes in the arm, uh, the depo shot, birth control pills, etc. They all need to also be used with condoms in order to protect from um, sexually transmitted infections. I follow a lot of uh, OBGYNs on Instagram and in general have, as part of my job, I'm very like tapped into this reproductive healthcare space. And I've seen at least anecdotal reports of requests for um, surgical sterilization going way up in the last several months. Do you feel like that's the case here in Wisconsin, or at least in your practice? And um, maybe to start with, you know, why, what, what has changed that um, these procedures are suddenly maybe spike, seeming to spike in popularity? Yeah, that's uh, a great question. And um, to your first question, yes, I have um, anecdotally seen a huge increase in um, people requesting surgical sterilization. And we noticed that after the uh, Dobbs decision was made on June 24th of this year, this decision, um, for those that, that haven't heard of it, it was the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. So that gave each state full power to regulate all aspects of abortion. Um, so not making it um, legal throughout the U.S., but giving the power back to the states to decide what to do. So here in Wisconsin, which is where we're recording today, we didn't you know, people may have heard of these trigger laws. We didn't, we didn't have a trigger law in um, Wisconsin, but we did have uh, a law that was, in, that was written in 1849. So obviously the, a lot of the wording um, was hard to relate to 2022. Um, so it, when you kind of suss out what, what it did say, it basically said we cannot perform abortions unless it's done to save the life of a mother. So um, some states still do allow abortions, um, 
you know, and that's based on the the state that you live in. And um, closest to Wisconsin is Illinois and Minnesota. They're still legal, um, but in our state, they are not legal. And the reason I'm I'm bringing all this up, some people might wonder what this has to do with surgical sterilization, is that for some women, this was very scary. Um, this uh, made women feel like they in Wisconsin did did not have control of their bodies. And I have heard some heartbreaking stories of um, women that have been uh, victims of sexual assault um, and were scared that if that happened again, they would have to be forced to carry uh, this pregnancy. That I've had uh, women who are in same-sex relationships um, but are worried about assault or women whose partners had vasectomies but were worried that something you know, could happen and that they would be forced to carry this pregnancy. Um, and so it's, it, 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 I'm sorry, it's just it's a really tough topic and it's just really heartbreaking. And it's, I, I don't think that, you know, obviously we don't want to get too much in the politics, but it is, um, this decision has lasting, um, really bad, um, effects on on the women that we see and treat every day. Um, and, you know, I think that in my personal experience, uh, yes, we've seen an uptick, but really the, the uptick in patient requests for surgical sterilizations happened after the, the leak of the Dobbs decision, which was in May of this year. So, um, you know, we, we kind of had a we heard we knew it was coming um, and, and some women were, were acutely aware of that. Um, and started requesting, you know, uh, very earlier in the summer. And then um, right after uh, the decision was made on June 24th, I've, I've actually looked back at my records and the phone calls um, on the 24th, 26th of May, like it, it just, you know, just went just kind of skyrocketed. I used to see maybe one patient a month requesting the surgery and now it's once, one or two a week easily or one or two a clinic day. So um, it is it had had very big effects on our um, patients in our state. I feel like as re- as requests for this procedure have become more common, I've also seen more stories of, and these are all also anecdotal, um, of people requesting requesting sterilization from their physicians and being. Having that request not be honored or being told that it wasn't possible. Um, and sometimes to my ears, it that request that denial can come off a little um, like it's not honoring that person's individual autonomy, I guess, sort of sometimes it feels like a a provider making a choice for someone. That they don't love. Um, Pater- I, I think like it, the I think the word you are looking for is paternalistic. I think that is the word I'm looking for. Yes, <laughs> just sort of this, um, you know. Okay, I guess you hear this conversation sometimes. The, you know, are you really sure? You you might regret this choice. Is there? Do you have any sense of how common regret is? Anecdotally, these are some of my most grateful patients. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the um and a lot of times it's uh people in their in their twenties that 
you know, come to me and we, we sit down, we have the talk, we get to know each other make sure it's the right fit. And I do the procedure and they come back, you know, just tears of happiness because they've been, you know, I'm the third, fourth, fifth doctor they came to that, um, listened and did the procedure, you know, and they were given all sorts of reasons of why other doctors wouldn't do it. Um, so, um, that being said, um, there, there is some kind of now maybe older data saying that, that shows that there is a higher risk of regret for patients who are sterilized before the age of 30. However, newer data that's coming in is showing that this risk of regret is actually higher in women that who already have children, so you kind of have to think about that for a second. It's kind of it, it, not as intuitive, but now that I've been doing this for a little, a little while, that actually makes perfect sense because um, women that don't want children, turns out they ne- a lot of times they never wanted children. Um, and uh, I think that there's some doctors that feel that, that they know better or that their you know biological clock or whatever is going to go off someday. But there are... I have talked to many women in their 20s who are just like, look, when I got my first period, I knew that I I never wanted any part of this. I did not ever want to have children um, and I don't want to have to worry about it. And the thought of pregnancy scares scares me. I mean, it's scary. pregnancy is scary. A lot of bad things can happen. Um, I know for my own personal pregnancies, they're not easy. Um, and you know, that's what we, we also talk about a lot is that this, while this is a surgical procedure with its own risks, Sometimes pregnancy is a lot riskier than one, you know, 30 minute surgery. It's nine months of things that can go wrong. So, um, you know, I think that that's a, a, a smart decision for some, for some people. Um, you know, that being said, if I, if I talk to someone and, you know, we get to talking and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly sure I don't want to have kids or like, you know, I could be reversed. Right. Then, then we, then I kind of like take a second like, okay, well, you know that no, this is permanent, and if if there's any like doubt in your mind, maybe maybe we should try the IUD or Nexplanon, um, it, just to leave that option open. And I I would never talk someone out that was like nope, hundred ten percent, you know. But but if someone has kind of that pause, then again, that's the one of the reasons we meet in clinic to kind of have that conversation to see if there you know maybe is a different um, you know form that would work for them. And then other reasons for me, as we talked about the risks of surgery, um, if if in seeing someone in chart review and talking to them, looking through their uh, past medical history, they they there are people that are just not we we say a poor surgical candidate. Um, so someone with a, a very high BMI or um, if they uh, have a lot of extra weight. Um, it, it can be very hard to ventilate um, because in the surgery, in order to see the pelvis, we kind of have to tilt the operating bed back a little bit. So you're um, kind of, uh, you know, almost like a headstand, but not, you know, like leaning back so that the um, blood is going to your head. And um, that can be harder for people that have more mass around their neck to to be able to oxygenate and um turns out oxygenation is important. So um, that that could make the surgery more difficult. Also patients that have lung disease or cardiovascular disease or poorly controlled diabetes or multiple previous surgeries that have lots of scar tissue in their pelvis and we might not even be able to find their fallopian tubes, then um, that's, you know, sometimes I, I have had patients that say, you know, like, I don't know if you're going to be a good surgeon. Like I, I, I 
love to do this, but you might, you know, the surgery might be more risky than the benefit. And so there might be other, other forms of birth control that we need to talk about. Do you have recommendations or suggestions for people who run into roadblocks that are not related to pre-existing conditions or the safety of surgery? Um, to find a, a supportive physician who can help connect them with uh, surgical sterilization if that's something they want, if they're running into a lot of challenges. How do we evaluate whether a, doc- whether a doctor will um, work with us in this way? Yeah. So actually, there is a list on um, the internet that has uh, gone um, <laughs> viral, as they say, after the, the Dobbs decision. Um, I first found out about this list uh, when I was uh, working in my last job in Olympia, Washington, and I did a um, surgical sterilization for a uh, um, someone in their 20s. And they said, oh, that you know, there's this list online. I went to put your name on it, but you were already on it. <laughs> I was like, cool. <laughs> um, so um, it was... Uh, there was an NPR show that it was that they they talked about the list. It's also um, there's it's on Reddit, and then I was just trying to pull up. There's a, a Facebook group um, called Child Free and Sterile Slash Seeking Sterilization, um, and this group has um, kind of exploded in popularity. Um, that they've uh, started adding doctors like myself to, um, and they have links to the. Um, not only to this list that shows um, different providers that are willing and open to talking about sterilization, but also articles um, supporting um, reasons why uh, women that don't have children, you know, obviously this is more towards women that don't have children that want to be sterilized and um, and um, articles supporting their cause. Um, and I, you know, I kind of follow it. Um, I, I recently was made a group expert because I'm a doctor, but, um, you know, I think a lot of the questions that you're asking, I see a lot on this site. And, um, I, you know, I think a lot of women, it's, it's very helpful, um, you know, for them to exchange and feel supported um, within that group. So um, for, for other women that are maybe listening to this, that would be interested, um, you know, I think that's a good place to look. Um, for more support and um, information. Awesome. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And thank you for taking this time and um, teaching me a little bit about surgical sterilization today. Yeah, anytime. And, um, you know, happy to answer any more questions that people might have in the area. And yeah, good luck to everyone. Contraception for all that want it. (laughs) Any, any, any kind, any reason, anytime. You got it. (laughs) The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can listen to the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find us on social media at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our show page. Thanks for listening.